22 years ago, 44 people boarded their morning flight, including their airline crew. Not like today when they pack these flights so full you can't barely move. This one was only a third full. They all prepared for takeoff and thought it was going to be another normal day of work. None of them saw past 10 a.m. September 11th, 2001, when 19 radical Islamic terrorists from Al-Qaeda hijacked and crashed four airplanes. And during the hijacking of United Airlines Flight 93, when it became evident to some of the passengers what had taken place, Todd Beamer, if you remember his name, which we should, and three others devised a plan to act. It was a plan of ultimate sacrifice. The four heroes later joined by 11 others, including some of the stewardesses, decided that they would storm the cockpit and take over the plane from the terrorists and try to get the plane to the ground hoping safely, but they thought they were heading towards the Capitol building and they wanted to save the lives of their fellow Americans. So throughout the planning stages, Mr. Beamer was on the phone with the GTE airphone specialist, Lisa Jefferson. And before Beamer and the others headed up this counteroffensive, he recited with Miss Jefferson the Lord's Prayer, and the 23rd Psalm. And then he told her, if I don't make it, please call my family and let them know how much I love them. And after this, Beamer turned to his fellow passengers and said, let's roll. Embroiled in dire dire circumstances not of their own making, 44 passengers were faced with the option Do nothing or do something. And that day, 15 passengers passengers were hastened to action with the phrase, let's roll. Church, we have all found ourselves embroiled in dire circumstances that we have not made up ourselves. Or as James phrases it, we have all met trials of various kinds. Or it could be said this way, that we are surrounded by trials on every side. Now, there are some passages, some things we read in the Bible that are further from us. We can pontificate these finer points of theology and still get right back to our lunch. But not this passage. True? Not here. This passage of James is up close and personal to every one of us. So he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You either in one, ready to head into one, or have been in one. Most of us, if not all, have asked really hard questions about God and what he is doing in the midst of it. True? We don't escape This is an up-in-our-face theology that requires an up-in-our-face book and letter. It's James. Let me ask you this. When you've been surrounded, or maybe you're in it right now, various trials and troubles, and they are pressing in on you, how often has this passage, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, how often has this passage brought you comfort? Or how often has this passage in the midst of various troubles and surrounded by difficulties, how often has this passage caused you greater turmoil?
As I was thinking through this, you know, the Lord knew I needed two weeks. As I was thinking through this and encountering some various trials of my own, I'm not talking about being sick, it's no big deal. But there's some other things going on in my life and I was thinking, Father, how can I bring this passage to your church if I don't know what the answer is? Like I'm in the midst of a trial and I'm thinking, how do I consider this joy? And can we really actually unpack this and not just walk past it? Because if if my church, and I think they are anything like me, Father, we've got to let this work on us. And in a really unique way, the truth of this passage, the book of James in particular, but this considering it pure joy, this truth unpacks us. Doesn't it? We're in the midst of a trial. Somebody says to us, or we say to ourselves, consider it pure joy, and either it brings great comfort, and I'm going to argue in my experience, my pastoral experience, my counseling experience, this really causes a lot more turmoil than comfort. True? And it gets right to the heart of the very existence, the very purpose, and the very meaning of what it means to have faith. That's why it unearths us. Do I really, really believe what God says right here, right now? And James, with one quick phrase, unpacks our hearts. It's in the midst of being surrounded by trials where God uses the Apostle James to help us see our trials for what they are in light of great faith. Meaning, this great gift of faith. Warning. We come to this passage with preconceived ideas. We've all quoted this verse to ourselves or had others quote it to us in the midst of difficulty and our response is everything but joy. We may have tried to apply this truth. We have tried to squeeze joy out. But maybe to no benefit. And let us consider that that may be because we haven't given the truth of James enough soil to take root in our hearts. Even now, the reason I offer this warning is that we're careful to guard ourselves against swashbuckling with the truth. You ever do that? So rooted in a difficulty and God's truth comes and you start well what about and I don't think and my experience and and we ward off truth with our own realities we come to this passage with preconceived notions church about what it's been like to either minister this to ourselves or have it ministered to us and it's really hard I don't know that I can actually do this passage. I don't know that this passage is actually doable. And we've got to be careful that we are not open to receiving what James has to say because it's in the Bible and James is saying it because it's true and it's applicable. So let us avoid, like he'll say in verse 19... Let us not be slow to hear and let us not be too quick to speak and let us not be quick to anger. James has real, practical, applicable truth from God. And let us hear what God has to say from His Word today. And so, Father, we need Your help for that. And once again, we recognize that 
and we submit ourselves to you. Help us to hold fast as we've been studying in our study of Hebrews to this great faith, this clinging to Christ alone and to see what it is that you have for us. Amen. Okay, the course we're going to take today is I'm going to give you a bit of contextual information about James himself that I think from his character lends weight to our study. Okay, then we're going to walk through a little bit of information about the recipients of the letter because we're going to do kind of a flyover because we're heading into a new book and we ought to understand the context a little bit. And so I want to get some information about who the recipients are that are receiving this letter because, again, I think that adds weight to the book. Then third, we want to unpack the core passages of this book, which is verses Chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. I want to spend some time looking at what is this faith that we're holding on to that's so worth being tested by trials that we can actually take joy in it. What is that? What is all that that's happening there? And then the last thing we're going to do is kind of scramble real quick, fly over through the rest of the chapter and look at these six let, I call them let imperatives. And we're going to see this, but James offers up this main point in verses 3 through 4, and then there's these six let imperatives. Let this, let that, let not this happen. And I believe they're all related to this main passage. So we're going to kind of skim over those, and that's honestly what made me think about this let's roll story, because with very much of the same very much of the same tenacity, James is seeing the church in difficulties and he's not going, oh man, I feel so sorry for you guys. He's saying, hey, let's roll. Let's get after it. And so that's going to kind of be our flight pattern um, for today, if you will. And so let's just jump in. James begins his letter, verse 1, with this introduction, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, while this is kind of a common salutation, it's not without meaning. So right out of the beginning, he offers this and he does two things. He gives an identity statement and a theological statement. James, a servant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he offers a theological statement. He puts God and Jesus on the same level very quickly identifies Christ as God, and then he boldly proclaims, Jesus is my Lord and I am his servant. This is his identity statement. I serve him. He wills. He wills, I serve. He leads, I follow. He determines what is good, I pursue the good that he determines. And this reality has profound impact on how James understands what faith means. You with me? It's not just, he's not just uttering these things. It, it shapes how he pastors. So in this short intro, we get a picture of James and his mindset, and we see the foundation and why his life embodies the message, faith works. So this letter is written towards the end of James's life, but we're going to back up a little bit to kind of get a picture of his character. So shortly after Pentecost, the Apostle Peter leaves Jerusalem to plant churches throughout the region. And that means that James is left as the leading pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So for nearly 20 years, he holds this position And so in so doing, you can imagine that James is no stranger to various trials. Can you imagine moving from Judaism to Christianity? From trying to figure out, well, how much of the Old Testament law do the Gentiles follow? And are there things now that the Messiah is here as Jews we need to loosen up on? And they're trying to figure out how to connect Jews and Gentiles in this church Not to mention there was this major famine that resulted in poverty during his pastoral leadership and caused all kinds of trouble um, with his people. 
And on top of all that, this constant pervasive persecution because they're in the religious city of the Jews where the temple is. And they're constantly having to put up with this religious elite group that's pressuring them about following this so-called Messiah. Yet in all of this, James remains at his post. He really is a picture of what it means to be steadfast. And in staying, he will be martyred shortly after, just a few years after penning this very letter. He will be killed for the very things that he's encouraging his church to hold on to. And so when James writes to his people about faith lived out in action while surrounded by the various trials, these are not theoretical musings or platitudinal wishes. You hear me? This is a man who has been tried by fire and is speaking out of experience. He has been tried and endured. He has been rooted in joy. He has not just endured the storms and covered over and hunkered down. He has moved through storms with intention. He has become like Jesus. He is living his faith practically in faith to what God has said. So when he pens these words, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, for you know. That he doesn't write those words from a cushy, plush chair in some comfortable living room in front of a fire someplace. He knows. This is not a diplomatic, political appeal from across the ocean. This is SEAL Team 6, fast roping into your living room and kicking doors open. That's what this letter is. This is not theoretical, spiritual rhetoric for James or his people. This is raw, this is gritty, and it's down to the earth reality lived out. It's personal. James isn't writing this letter to unpack theological intricacies of salvation by faith over 12 chapters like Romans or Hebrews. I'm not saying that that's bad, but that's not what James is doing. Matter of fact, uh, this book barely made it into the canon. There was a lot of discussion around 300 about whether or not this book should even be in the canon because James doesn't do that. He doesn't unpack these large theological issues. But again, he's fast roping in and he's right in the middle of their lives and he's saying, what does this look like? Um, Paul already developed 12 chapters on what it means to have faith um, alone. I'm talking about now, what does it look like to live out your faith? That's what James wants to know. That's what he wants to get after. He assumes their salvation by faith. And he's going to take the fundamental reality of truly possessing faith versus just professing it, but really possessing faith. And he's going to get right up in his reader's grill about application, right up in our grill about what does this look like? You say you got it. And so given who James is, this kind of intense Let's roll kind of reality in the face of difficulty makes a lot of sense. Many scholars believe that he was strongly influenced by two primary sources for the truth of writing his book. The first source is the first nine chapters in particular of the book of Proverbs. There's, he, he has 12 little mini sermons in the middle of the book and they're shaped, they're, they look like little mini proverbial, um, sermonettes in the midst of the book and they're kind of easy mesmerizable memorizable they 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 carry some of the same characteristics as the proverbs and again this is believed to be a pretty 
strong source for the writing of his book. And the second source is the teachings of Jesus, and in particular, the Sermon on the Mount. This is almost like, James's book is almost like a physical exposition of Jesus' sermon in, captured in Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7. Which would make sense given that most scholars also believe that Jesus is, James is the half-brother of Jesus. So not only is James familiar with the book of practical faith or practical wisdom in action, he also lived with, ate at the same table as, played in the same sandbox with, tooled around in the same wood shop as the person of faith in action. And so who better to write a book on faith lived out in action than the man who grew up himself with faith in action. So this is our author, James. Well, what about the recipients? Well, again, as James opens his letter, he tells us that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. These are Hebrew Christians fleeing Jerusalem because staying meant physical persecution and or death. So following the stoning of Stephen, Saul, right, who we later know becomes Paul, enacts this full-blown assault on the young church. Acts 8 says it this way, a great persecution arises against the church in Jerusalem and they, meaning the church, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. That's what Romans uh, Acts 8.1 says. So all the believers are scattered except to the apostles. James stays steadfast. And he writes this letter to his church that scattered all throughout the region. We often sterilize the Bible. But let's remember that the recipients of this letter were Christians displaced from their hometown. These are real people facing real trials and real injustice, and losing real jobs, and losing, leaving real family, and disconnected from real friends, and they're suffering real financial loss because of Christ, and even facing real death. And the message that James gives them in the face of all this real various trials is not platitudes, nor does he sympathize with their flesh. He doesn't start off with a long treaty of, I understand where you are and where you're coming from. Let me soften this up a little bit. He doesn't start there. Nor does he apologize for God's activity or make God out to be just as much of a victim as they are, which is happening a lot, True. By the way, that's the whole book, The Shack, or the movie. You need to stay away from it. It's called open theism. And God's just a learning right along with us. And that He would do something about all this evil if He could. James isn't doing that. He's not making excuses for God. Rather, James' admonition to his church is one of hopeful, patient continuance. Visceral character construction. Let's get after this. Immovable, solid, yet pressing forward. And again, his tone in the face of these various trials is, Hey church, Let's roll. And so James comes off of the ropes swinging. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. James is offering that reality in all kinds of hardship. Coming from places of hardship, writing to places, to people in places of hardship, but he's saying that there's something we can know in the midst of this that empowers us to determine it, to, to, to determine it of benevolent, satisfactory benefit when we come against a variety of difficulties. There's something he says that we can know that changes the way we engage difficulties. So let's put ourselves in the text. You may be overwhelmed with a hundred of small problems or maybe just a few really big ones. You may be despairing over difficulties in relationships or grieving the loss of broken relationships. You may be facing ongoing incurable disease or have somebody close to you who is. Someone you know has died And it seemed utterly meaningless. You may have fractured relationships with family, both close or distant. You may be profoundly misunderstood by those who are closest to you. You may be profoundly hurt by the sin of someone else or hurt by the sin of rehearsing that sin of somebody else. You may be mistreated by those in authority. You may be lonely or despairing or anxious. Your job may be hard or you may feel like no one understands or cares. And church, I want you to know these are all very real and they are very hurtful. And it doesn't matter that there's some Sudanese people that are suffering more than you. It doesn't matter. It's your suffering and it's important. And it's important to God. There is no minimizing our various trials. True? Isn't that the ditch we head towards? We're going to minimize the trial? But James says, even in the midst of that, for you know, there is something you can know, James says to his church, that will cause you To take joy in your various trials. You want to know what it is? I do. And here's another warning. This is the place where we're tempted to one of two ditches. One of two temptations. We either want to minimize the truth of the Bible. Or we want to minimize the truth of our various trials. But James says doing either one of those is a mistake. Neither works. Minimizing your trials or minimizing the truth of the Bible, neither one works. The Bible always gives appropriate emphasis on the trial, but maximizes the truth and the glory of God. True? The Bible always, hear me again, always gives appropriate emphasis on the trial but maximizes the truth and the glory of the Lord. And so our temptation is we're either going to contextualize, what I mean by that is interpret or view or to put in perspective our various trials through the lens of God's Word, His stated reality, or we're going to contextualize God's Word, His stated reality, through the lens of our various trials. You with me? We're going to do one or the other. We're either going to see our various trials through the lens of God's Word without without minimizing our trials, or we're going to minimize God's Word by maximizing the reality of our trials. Let me say this another way. We are either going to reduce the size of our our various trials by overwhelming them with the grand scheme of God's truth, or are we going to reduce the sides of God's truth 
by overwhelming them in the grand scheme of our various trials. It's a temptation for us. But James says, for you know, there's something you can know that produces joy in your lives, even when surrounded by great difficulties. If we're going to get at the bottom of that, we got to ask really three questions. What is this faith we possess? Why is that so important? Why has God allowed it to be tested by various trials? Second question is, what is steadfastness and how does the reality of it produce joy? And thirdly, how do we apprehend it when we don't feel like we can? So first, what is this tested faith we possess? Hebrews 11 says, defining faith, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And if church, if we don't get the value of our faith, if we don't get how important it is to us, if it is not the true central driving value in our lives, then just straight up, you're, you're going to have a really hard time considering it pure joy when you enter various trials. If faith in Christ Jesus is not like at the end of the day, what else do you have? No, really, think about it. When you stand before God in heaven, and everybody will, what do you have that's of any importance or value at all? What are you going to say? Well, my wife, well, my husband, he, well, my pastor was kind of a, what are you going to say? I'm clinging, I'm holding fast to the reality of Christ paying my sin debt and living life for me. Yeah? We're going to utter his name. So that's all we got. And if we don't get that that is the greatest thing that I have, even over my comfort, then we're going to have a God-awful time really considering having joy in the midst of trials. Faith is the most important possession we have. I said a few weeks ago, faith, faith in Christ Jesus is the only thing that will keep us from being annihilated by God's holiness in His presence. That's it. And so, again, Peter says it this way, Blessed be the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in this, what? In your faith in Christ, in your faith in what's to come, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by your trials. No, look, nobody's asking you to take joy in your trial. Christ certainly didn't. He endured the cross and scorned the shame for the joy what? of what was set before him. He didn't enjoy the trial. He endured it and scorned it. But he looked forward. His joy was in what was to come. His finished work, when he sat down beside the Father in heaven and looked out of all the children that would forever come to him and say, they belong to you, Father, because I did my job. That's his joy. So that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold. Church, this is the thing that we have to understand when James says, when your faith is tested by various trials, it, that needs to be the golden ticket in our lives. If we're going to understand what James has for us in this passage. So what is steadfastness? Steadfastness. 
James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In the original, the word is hupemene. It means hopeful, cheerful endurance towards future things that brings present stability. It's a patient continuance with assurance. I intentionally took out the word patient waiting in assurance because we think patient and waiting is I sit down and wait for something. And that's not what James is saying. He's saying it's a patient continuance with insurance. Let's roll. Let's move. We got to do something. And we're moving forward with assurance versus passive waiting in ambiguity and confusion. How often you've done this in the midst of trials and difficulties? I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what God's doing. I'm not sure what God's doing. Hey, that's not what James is talking about. That is passive waiting in confusion. We do know what God is doing, church. We got to stop lying to ourselves. I had to do that this week. Here I am, man, I feel for you. I get to study this, two weeks, 20 plus hours. And I'm wondering, Lord, is there a way I can say this and totally dependent on the Spirit of God to run this into our hearts and lives, true? But is there a way that's easier for me to say this that can make it helpful for me and the church to understand that what you're calling us to And even in the midst of all this study, I enter into this trial of a various kind, and I'm going, man, I don't know what you're doing, Lord. And he goes, yes, you do. You're studying the passage. So to be steadfast is to be fixed and solid and stable, not shifting. Look, Lord, I don't like this. That's okay. I'm not a fan of this. I'm going to endure it. I'm going to even maybe despise it, but you're at work doing something. And I'm confident of that. And so I'm going to keep moving forward with the things that I do know to do, because at the end of the day, you're going to take care of all this and shape me into the person you want me to be. Steadfast is to be fixed and solid and stable, not shifting, Colossians 1.23. To be immovable, but also abounding, 1 Corinthians 15. Not holding only a defensive position. I'm just going to wait for the storm to blow over, but actively advancing. That's what it means to be steadfast. And so if I were to, if we were to take James chapter one, verses two through three, and we were to put them in a pot and we were to boil them down till there's only the bare minimums left, the essential components are going to be three things. Faith, steadfast, and completeness. And what James is arguing is that our steadfastness is inseparable with true faith. Steadfastness is inseparable with true faith. Those who have true faith remain steadfast. I really like this said this way. Steadfastness is the physical manifestation of our faith. Steadfastness is the very fruit in action of our faith. And the work of steadfastness, verse 3, is to make us perfect and complete, to be finished. This is so, here's this first of these six let imperatives. And an imperative means it's vital, it's crucial, and it's authoritative. That's what a, that's what an imperative is. This is not just a suggestion. This is something we need to deeply consider. So here's the first of these six imperatives. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and not lacking in anything. This completion or perfection means finished in mental and moral growth. It means to be entirely whole. By the way, it's interesting that James uses 
completion, perfection. He uses these phrases seven times in the book. The number for perfection or completion. And the first time is here in verse 3. And the Greek word is teleos. It means a completely integrated life. A life where your actions and your words are the same. What you say and what you do are the same. It's a completely integrated life. To be perfect. To be integrated. By the way, this is in contrast to a double-minded person in verse 8. So this perfect completion to be fully integrated is in contrast to a person who, well, for, uh, I'm, I'm going to do this away. No, I'm going to do it this way. No, I'm going to doubt God. No, I'm going to ask him for wisdom. I don't think I like that wisdom. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it his way. I'm going to do it my way. That's what is a double-minded man. He looks like a wave being tossed into and fro. And James is saying, that's not a fully integrated life. That's not a complete and a perfect life. My guess is that there's not a one of us who doesn't suffer from a disintegrated life. True? That we all have gaps between what we believe and what we live. Yeah? And James's argument is the purpose of trials is to close, is to reveal the gap and to close the gap. And in that we ought to rejoice. You're going to close that gap in my life, Lord? From what, between what I say and what I do, I hate that about myself. Don't you, church? Man, I, I say one thing and I live another. I, I talk about God and then I, I, Talk negatively about other people. I hate this disconnectedness in my life. And James says, that's why you take joy in troubles, because God's going to close that up with those. So with his sage wisdom, after years of pastoring and enduring trials, James is going to make the argument that these trials of various kinds, again, have both the ability to reveal our disintegrated lives, our inconsistencies, our double-mindedness, and to close. And to provide the opportunity for us through endurance to become complete, integrated, whole, and perfect. So how is it, let me summarize it, that we can count it all joy when we're surrounded by various trials? Well, because our faith is the most important possession that we have, and there's gaps between our faith and our living, and they're going to be closed. And rather than being scattered and fickle and easily swayed and all over the place and steered by our emotions and constantly embarrassing ourselves and every changing circumstances throws us hither and yon and we're back and forth and back and forth. And rather than that, we're going to be made resolute and consistent and trustworthy and immovable and nourishing of others as we believe the Lord unto action, even in the midst of our trials. That's who he's making us in to be. Yeah? And we rejoice in that. I was talking with a brother on the phone, and I'm thinking through some things this guy's struggling with, and I'm thinking about my own stuff, and I'm going, man, this is so hard. But the more I talked about it, I realized, wait a minute, if God is doing that in me in the midst of this trial, I, I can get joyful about that. I don't like the trial. But I can be joyful that he's closing these gaps in my life and really legitimately say, Lord, let this work finish in my life. Like more than I want comfort, more than I want this trial to be over, I want you to finish this work in my life. And I believed it. And I believe it now. See, but this reality of being resolute and consistent and trustworthy and immovable and nourishing others through my own righteousness who is that? That's Christ. And through His steadfastness, through His endurance, He did what? He purchased our salvation. Church, this isn't just about us making our lives better. This is about us embodying the gospel. Because as we look to Him, consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners, right? So that you don't grow weary and lose heart. That's what that passage means. 
This is the gospel. This is what Jesus did for us. See, there's an order to this. His steadfastness comes first and then ours. We can only be steadfast because he's steadfast. We know exactly what steadfastness looks like because in the midst of a trial, none of us have ever sweated to the, suffered to the point of shedding our blood, true? But he has. In the midst of the greatest trial ever given to any man ever, he looked to God the Father and he said, I won't falter. And we know what it looks like. His steadfastness comes first and then ours. So how do we become steadfast when we aren't? How do we move from being, eh, I'm not doing that great, to I want to grow in my ability to be steadfast? Well, this is where these six let imperatives come in for us. And I believe, again, that these let imperatives are directly related and flow out of verses 2 through 4. And let me tell you why I think that is. Look at verse 21. This is the bookend. It's right after the sixth let. And it's the bookend to, I believe, this whole first part of James. Then, by the way, he's going to run this truth when Ian does favoritism next week. This whole reality of remaining steadfast and being immovable and doing the right thing at the right time, regardless of any other reason, he's going to run it into this thing about um, uh, showing favoritism. And then he's going to run it into what does it look like to tame the tongue. And then he's going to run it into interpersonal relationships. And this is the, he, he makes, he builds this whole truth and then he runs it into various practical areas of living throughout the rest of the book. But look at verse 20, 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with weak meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This implanted word is in opposition to asking God for wisdom in, in verse 5 through 8 and then not listening. So on one hand he says, ask God for wisdom, verse 5. Let him ask in faith without doubting. Verse 6, verse 7, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Rather, don't be like that. Don't ask the Lord for wisdom and then not believe he's going to give it to you. Or when he does give it to you, don't believe it's good and then don't act on it. He's saying, rather, receive the implanted word and do it. And that implanted word is able to save your souls. And so that encompasses these six let imperatives. So again, we're going to run through these very quickly. So if you want to be steadfast and complete and perfect and not lacking anything, there's these lets that we need to jump in. If you want to take joy in your trials and be steadfast and perfect and complete and not lacking anything, verse 4, then let this steadfastness have its full effect. Let it finish its work in you. If you want to take joy in trials and be steadfast and perfect and complete, and you don't know how to do that, you're not sure what that looks like, verse 5, ask God and He gives generously. He doesn't fault find. You want to know how to pursue steadfastness and looking like Him in the midst of trial, then ask Him and He will help you. There is no way He will say no. But ask, verse 6, ask in faith. In other words, Lord, you say it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey. It's not just an asking like, you probably pull this off as good as me. Okay, I'm going to ask for this, but I got to believe, I got to believe I can't doubt it. I can't doubt it. I can't, you know, you got about a minute and a half between asking and doubting. True. But it's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about asking and then acting on it in faith, doing it. If you're not sure how to be steadfast, ask and ask in faith and he'll give it to you. If you want to be steadfast and complete and perfect, verse 6, 
uh, verse 9. This is this whole thing about let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. There's a lot that we could say in each of these church, but really what he's saying there is if you want to be steadfast, don't be consumed with changing your circumstances. The poor man says, oh my gosh, this would be so much better if I had money. No, it wouldn't. The rich man says, oh my gosh, money is such a burden and I can't, if, uh, if I only was, if I only had less money or I didn't have all these responsibilities, I, I could do this better. And James is going, hey, be steadfast is not a matter of your circumstances. Then verse 13, if you want to be said steadfast and not lacking anything, don't blame God. If you're sitting around and you're in the midst of difficulties and, and you can't figure out what's going on, oh man, this is, God's making this really hard on me. God doesn't like me. God's against me. James says, if you want to be steadfast, you can't do that. So he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. This is not God's problem. Don't make your answer your enemy. Don't do it. If you want to be steadfast, lastly, and perfect and complete, not lacking anything, then be quick to hear and be slow to speak and slow to anger. How often have you been in the midst of a trial and you start arguing with God almost immediately? This is horrible. I don't like this. I don't know why you're doing what you're doing. I don't, this isn't going to work this way. And oh, no, it's my, it's my, you know, my this or that and this person, this and that and the other thing. And we've, and we're listening way more to ourselves than to God. True. Work really quick to speak. We're really slow to hear and we're really quick to anger. You ever done that? And I'm going to tell you, church, my experience this past week, I went through all of these. Another confession of a wayward pastor. Here I am in the middle of studying this, and my mind is racing. I'm explaining everything to God. I can recall multiple details. My wife can tell you, I'm like the professional dot connector of the universe. You know, I can see things that don't even exist. You know, I'm like the beautiful mind. I can make those things connect if you give me a few minutes. You know what I'm saying? You can race around and collect all these arguments and then present them to God and go, see, this is the real problem. And I was there, church. And here I am studying this passage and I'm going, Father, I'm doing it and I can't. Man, I recognize how hard it is for us to actually be in the middle of a trial and to consider it pure joy. But I'm telling you what's true by experience, okay? One, it's true because it's God's word. But when I brought myself in submission to it and I started saying, Lord, you have a great plan for my life and that's already been made manifest in the fact that you've saved me from myself and brought me to yourself through my faith in Christ. It's all I got. And it's really important to you. And you can take whatever other lesser comfort that I'm lobbying over and do away with it because I want what you have for me. And here's why I can ask in faith. This part was really hard for me. I'm like, how can I ask in faith? I started recounting all the times in my life where I've asked God for help and he gave it to me. And it's almost never immediate, but it's almost always within two or three days. That's true. And I saw that as I began rehearsing. Man, I remember this time. I was so burdened, Lord. I remember being on the phone with Mary one time. And I remember being out in the woods one time and saying, God, I just need your help. And within two or three days, all of a sudden, his help starts coming my way. In this case, I'm wrestling and wrestling. Mary and I kind of got into it because I'm being a jerk and, you know, looking for her to do what only God can do. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I got to ask for her forgiveness. And I go to her forgiveness. And then that night, I'm like, how did I get to this place? I never thought I would have been here yesterday morning. I never thought God would have rescued me this quick. And yet he rescued me. You know how? Because I'm like, father, you are so good. I'm going to submit myself. I'm going to ask for you to help me to remain steadfast in church. That's what I'm encouraging you to do. I'm not saying I know exactly what that looks like for you, but I am telling you this. What James says is the word of God and it functions. It's practical. And he wants to fast rope down in your life. He wants to kick some doors open and he wants to show you some things. And he wants you to be complete and perfect and made whole.
And here's the outcome. Look at, look at chapter 12. Blessed is the man who remains. Okay. Running out of time. This word blessed is loaded. We talked about this a couple years ago when we walked through Psalms. This is packed full of invitational. This is going to be amazing for you. It's a rich, it's an enriched life. Blessed. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We will, hey, not a question, not maybe, maybe, or, or get over the bar. It's not it. You will receive the crown of life. Now, quickly, Bible scholars are divided on exactly what James means by crown of life. But I don't think it means heaven alone. He's actually talking about right now. I think it's a tangible reality experienced by the steadfastness of faith. This is a person who through faith, even in the midst of trial, remains stalwart and calm and poised. And he's convinced that God is right. And he's not thinking of himself. And he's active. And he's helping other people. Help me. Who doesn't want to be that kind of person? You know what? When you're that kind of person, it's a crown of life. True? Anybody dream of being fickle and all over the place and somebody's coming to help you and you're so bunged up in yourself, you can't do nothing for them? Do we aspire to be that kind of person? No. We want the crown of life. To be a Psalms 1 person. It's very similar. Man, I'd wonder if James was thinking about this. I don't know it to be true. But when he was penning these words, Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, in all that he does prosper, he prospers. In other words, he's got something to offer. And if James wasn't thinking about that, it's in this same vein that James says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in trial, because he'll receive the crown of life. This is who he is making us in to be church and the choice to keep trusting God in the midst of trial to remain steadfast is a blessing and it brings blessing. So if you want to count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, remember that your faith is the most important thing that you have. God is doing something in you. If you're struggling to know how to do this, then ask Him for His help. Recall His faithfulness that how He's done it before. Don't obsess over your circumstances. Shut your mind down, slow it down, and be listening to God, not yourself. Paul says to the Colossians, encourage you with this and we close. Continue in the faith Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. 1 Corinthians 15.58 Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Romans 5.3 We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces steadfastness, and steadfastness produces character, and character produces hope. And so, Father, we give you full reign and freedom to do that in our lives, and we will not passively sit by. We will, we will join you. We will endure with hope. We will actively participate. Lord, we will let these things finish their work so that we can be complete, so that we can be more whole and brought together less gaps in our knowing and our doing and to these ends we know this is not something we can do in our flesh 
It's a work that you started and you will finish it. But based on all the imperatives of all that we know in the New Testament and the Old, we get to participate with our choices in joining you. And we commit ourselves afresh to doing that. Through the power of Christ Jesus, who has conquered it for us, the Spirit who lives in us, and the promises in which we look forward to from your word that strengthen us. And so to this end, we dedicate ourselves joyfully once again, Father in heaven. Amen.